So, take your Bibles, open them up to the book of Esther. Um, And we're going to look today, we're going to start today looking at Esther, and then we're going to retrograde back to Nehemiah and finish with good old Nehemiah. I want to talk to you today about corruption, creep, and the me generation. Um, so we'll, we'll, we will get Nehemiah done, but I want to, I want to introduce this uh, <clears throat> by talking to you about Esther, because Esther kind of, uh, one, we're not going to go through the whole book. Um, you guys all know the story. It's it's pretty simple reading, and it's a great story to read, by the way. So, the, uh, the the kind of the story of Esther is she's the queen who saves her people, obviously the the Jewish people. I want you to think uh, about the times uh, of this book and the political and social conditions uh, that they that they were in. They they were living under. An absolute monarchy, which was arbitrary, authoritarian, and uh, you could get at cross purposes with it very easily. And uh, and when you did, they made your house a dunghill. Okay, so it was kind of some severe things. I'm not making that up. That's what it says. So uh, interesting, interesting times. Um, the Book of Esther introduces to history, not just to us but introduces to history uh, the Feast of Purim. The book is anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. It's obviously about Esther. Um, uh, Excuse me here a second. Um, Esther, we believe, was a historical figure, not just something made up because of the feast. It all ties together. As a matter of fact, I haven't seen Bible scholars do it, but I wouldn't be surprised to figure out at some point that when we see some of the things going on in the wall and enemies, Nehemiah and fighting and that sort of thing, that it wasn't connected with some of the things that happened in the book of Esther. We'll have to just kind of wait and see. Archaeology is showing us more and more all the time. And although we do not, we have not yet found actually historical records of Esther, we do have, obviously, uh, historical records of Asherahs or Xerxes and of Vashti. And if you want to do an interest, the study on that, it's very interesting because there was all kinds of political maneuverings going on. Well, she was just a queen that he kicked out. And no, that's not the case. There were all kinds of things that were going on there. So it's an interesting thing to study if you like history. Let me read to you a little bit about Purim. So Purim is the Jewish feast that got started because of uh, the deliverance of the Jews. And um, actually, it comes out of chapter 3, verse 7, where it talks about uh, Haman... Um, it says in verse 5, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So he had made, <clears throat> so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Asherah. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Asherah, they cast purr, 
That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So <clears throat> basically, from what the, the scholars tell us is, is that they were trying to figure out the, the exact time for Haman to execute his plan to destroy all of the Jews because he hated them. So let me read to you a little bit about Purim. Of all the Jewish festivals, Purim is the most secular in flavor and one of the most joyful. These days it is normally celebrated only one day, the 14th of Adar in February or March, preceded by a day of fasting. Children are given rattles so that when the story of Esther is read, they can make a loud noise to drown out the name of the wicked Haman whenever it occurs. Can you just see kids doing that? I mean, making a loud noise with a rattle. Um, Other festivities include exchanging presents. Hmm. Sounds like giving food parcels to the poor. Sounds like a holiday I know about. Uh, Performing Purim plays and wearing costumes. In Israel, a Purim carnival is held and has become a celebration, not just of the deliverance experienced in the days of Esther and Mordecai, but of the amazing survival of Jewish people for thousands of years in spite of persecution and hardship. So the deliverance that came to the Jews because of Esther and her intercession with the king, and, you know, we know the famous, you know, the famous praise, uh, famous (laughs) phrase that, and by the way, it says perhaps you've been sent there for such a time as this doesn't say you have been. It says perhaps. There's an element of faith involved in that. <clears throat> we can't get into all that because there are other things we have to say today. But uh, So it was, it was during the Persian reign. This was after Babylon was conquered by the Persians. And we already mentioned uh, Xerxes and Asherah and the same name. So there are three key themes. And I'm going to just give them to you briefly. I think they'll be pretty self-explanatory. One is divine providence that God put people in the right places at the right time for the right things to happen for the Jews to be delivered. Secondly, was human responsibility. And that brings us back, it's actually twofold, because the people who did evil got judged, and the people who did right had to do right in order for the whole thing to work out the way it was. So Esther was there, did what she needed to do, took her life in her hands. Mordecai did much the same thing. And so these people doing what they needed to do, doing the right thing, that's part of their, that's part of the human responsibility. The third theme, which I found very interesting, uh, and it, this is out of the notes of my Bible here, talked about the absurdity of wickedness. Okay, and I just want to read part of this. Asherah and Haman were important people who wielded considerable power, but the story of Esther again and again evokes laughter at their expense. Asherah rules over 127 provinces. So let me read to you the very first verse. Now, in the days of Asherah, the Asherah who reigned from India to Ethiopia... Now, if you picture this in your map, in your, picture this in your mind, this map in your mind, you see India and Ethiopia, of course, is in Africa. So we're going all the way around this fertile crescent, all the way around across the Dead Sea. 
I mean, over 127 provinces. All right? So here's, I'll finish reading this. Uh, Asher Harris rules over 127 provinces, but cannot control his wife. And his so-called wise men are no better. And it gives a scripture reference. But the most telling humor is at the expense of Haman. The reader is clearly meant to laugh at the way his vanity traps him into having to publicly honor the very man that he intended to kill. And his death on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. It is a classic case of the villain falling into his own pit. And as a matter of fact, um, it kind of seems when the king is ready to sentence um, Haman to death that the his attendants there who knew all this was going on and could and could you know I, I can just imagine you know the vanity of the king and I could just imagine the attendants there and all just rolling their eyes well here we go again you know this dude's doing this stuff again they they're the ones who suggest well Haman's got some really neat gallows in his backyard why don't we use those so it was actually one of them that suggested it so they hung Haman on his own on his own gallows now. One other thing I want to mention about this as we, uh, as we move through this, and we've already talked about this, you know, divine providence, human, human responsibility, absurdity, of wickedness. This and all of the Old Testament is part of our heritage. We can't slice the New Testament away from this. Earlier we spoke about um, Ezra and Nehemiah and those books and how they were rebuilding the temple and worship, and then Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of that city so that there could be a Jerusalem for Jesus to come to when he came, so that there would be a Jewish people there and Jewish worship there. John says he came into his own, the Jewish people, and his own received him not. So all, all of this has an, has a, uh, an historical significance. And what if there were no people for Jesus to present himself to. That's what Haman wanted to do. He wanted to destroy all the Jewish people in all those 127 provinces. And by the way, that included the area of Jerusalem where Nehemiah and Ezra and Jeremiah and the others of them were. So there would, this, this is part of our heritage. And when we read this, we shouldn't say, well, that's all, that's all a Jewish thing. Yeah, part of it is. But there is an understanding here that God is working in all this. It just isn't some little isolated story over here that it's all part of, of God's great plan to bring about a Savior, His own Son, who would be a Savior, born of a woman, born under the law, that He would redeem those who were under the law. So, throw that in there. By the way, I'll just throw this out. Um, <laughs> for all you legalists out there, please read carefully how Esther became queen. Okay? Um, the Bible says she found favor everywhere, and certainly God was in it. But read between the lines, folks, and I'm using language carefully here. Read between the lines because she used her wits and her charms to get where she was. Or she would have never been selected as queen in the first place. 
And I'll leave that there and let you ponder that. Uh, Pastor Jess at LakeviewHamilton.com is my email. And you can, you can send all your uh, uh, interesting comments there. All right, let's go back to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at the last chapters. And in the last chapters of Nehemiah, there is a great emphasis on his struggle to maintain integrity in that temple system and in the city itself. So they've, they've rebuilt the temple, and then we're going to read... Uh, can't go through this very chronologically. It actually covers, I think, a couple things more than once, um, and it can get a little bit confusing. Uh, but we, we're going to be able to draw some points from it. Um, but he struggles. These people are surrounded by a corrupt world, and, um, and they have to deal with that. So he struggles against financial corruption against uh, adulterated uh, leadership, foreigners who were not Jews, who did not love God, who did not serve the law of God in, in places of leadership, intermarriage, which was coupled with that and probably coupled with the financial things too. Again, we're not given all of this, but if you, if you sit down and think about how things work, you know, I think you'll figure out that that's probably some of the things that was going on. So, in a large sense, in a larger sense, so it's Israel trying to keep a godly, viable, living system of worship after returning from exile. Now, now not all of these were people who were here were returnees, but a great many of them left what they had where they had been for more than a generation and came, and they came back in in more than one wave, but they, they left there and they came back because they wanted to be in God's land. They wanted, they wanted to be away from there. They wanted to be back in God's land. So these were not ungodly people. These were people that had at least some degree of a, of a motive to want to serve God and be there. But they're surrounded in that area by people who had lived that same more than a generation without any real influence from the temple from God, from godly worship, from respecting the Sabbath, from respecting marriage, and some of the other things that repeatedly come up. We see in the book of Ezra this stuff is dealt with, and we see Nehemiah dealing with it again. So these, they were living in a, in a hostile environment, and when it wasn't physically hostile, it was certainly culturally hostile. In other words, you're, you're living like that. Why are you doing that? And so on and so forth. And all of this pressure that come. Personally. So that, that's a large sense. That's what was going on then. But personally now. How do we. How do we as believers. And especially new believers. Keep your heart focused in the Lord. So that we worship in spirit and in truth. In the midst of the hostile environment that we're in. So we're not only in a hostile environment where our culture is mocked and ridiculed, but there's also this pressure to respond in kind, to give back the way has been given to us. And I want to suggest to you folks, I know you've heard me say this before, and you say, oh man, you're such a downer. I don't think it's going to get better. It may temporarily but these cycles are going to continually decline. 
And, and we need to grab on to what we can grab on, and we need to teach our kids to grab on to those things so that we can, we can cling tenaciously to that which is good. So we know what's right, and we hang with it. And that's, that's what those people were having to do there. And Nehemiah was, was, the, was the instrument of that, sometimes in bizarre ways. We'll look at that in a second. And that's what we need to do now. We need to keep ourselves pure from those attitudes out there. So let me go through this real quick here in the time I've got left. In chapter 9, they read the law. Ezra reads the law to the people. And the people repent and confess their sins. And they also go through this wonderful account of God's faithfulness to them down, down through the years. And, and, and how every time they would disobey, God would judge them and they'd repent. God would give, be gracious to them and he would restore them and, and give them blessing once again. And they would do this over and over and over again. Um, let me just throw out here a little point here, kind of a theological point to help you with Scripture. Um, <clears throat> some of the more oft-quoted promises of the prophets were given <clears throat> during these times. Be careful about making specific application of those to your life. So the there were prophets who said to them, um, you've sinned, God's going to judge you, and if you repent, God will restore restore things to you. And that was repeated by different prophets more than one one time. It was repeated, so it happened more than once. Um, Okay. Christians love to go back in there and pull that prophet out and apply it to their life. Or, excuse me, pull that promise out and apply it to their life. There can be a general understanding. It can be generally applied, but it cannot be specifically applied. It was not written to you specifically. It was written to them specifically. We'll say, can I read it and learn from it? Yes, you can. This whole book is written for your instruction for your admonition and to encourage you in faith. So yes, you can. But don't pull those Old Testament... If we're going to start pulling Old Testament prophets, Old Testament prophecies and promises out and make then applying them to our lives, then each one of us in here can claim, can claim um, descendants as the sands of the sea. Because the underlying principle is the same. If you understand that, say Amen. If you understand it, don't like it, say something else. All right, never mind. All right. In chapter 10, they make a covenant. So they, they do all this confessing. And, and in chapter 10, uh, after hearing about all God's... They make, they make a covenant. Now, we're going to look briefly at this. Um, or we're going to look a little bit longer at this. In verse 39, it's kind of, ju- it's kind of summarized. So it says, verse 39, For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Okay? Last thing is said. Now, 
I want to go back and because there are seven things that I counted. There may be you may be able to parse this um, a little bit differently, but I but I found seven elements of their pledge. It says in verse thirty, "We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons." Thirty-one, or, or the second one, um, <clears throat> and we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. So the first two are things they won't do. They won't give their wives. Um, they won't give their. They won't intermarry. And the second thing is they won't buy from people on the Sabbath day. The third one, we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So we're talking about the year of uh, of, of rest rest harvest, and then the year of jubilee later on. Which. When we, if we dig back into it, that's exactly why they spent 70 years in captivity. God counted those Sabbath years they refused to give him. So, and then the fourth one, it says, We will take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, etc. I'm going to skip down through that. Verse 34. We, the priests, the Levites, the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God according to the house. Why did they need wood? Are they building something? Yeah, they had fires. There was fire going constantly. And so they were constantly out here scavenging, scavenging around trying to find wood. Um, <clears throat> Many, many years ago when I was at Israel, there aren't very many trees. There are lots of rocks. As a matter of fact, they told us we could take a rock home as a souvenir. Uh, um, which I didn't do. I maybe should have. Um, all right. Number five. We will obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the trees. Uh, here's, here's the sixth one. We will, all, to the house of our God... Uh, also bring, I'm messing this up here as I'm reading it, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborns of our herds and of our flocks. And then the last one, uh, it says they'll bring the wine and oil to the priests, the chambers of the house of God, and to bring the Levites, the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect tithes of all our towns where we labor. So I counted seven things there. They pledge. We're going to do. And the the vast majority of them had to do with maintaining the temple. So that's why I said it's summarized at the bottom. We will not neglect the house of our God. Chapters 11 and 12, and I'm going to go quickly through this, are, is a roster of people there and what their duties were. And in, in some instance, it was a roster of people who moved from the countryside to come and live in the city so there'd be enough people in the city of Maine to... Uh, to maintain it. Let me read to you verse 44 of chapter 12. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered, and they performed the service of our God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. 
For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, they were directors of the singers, and they were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God in all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions of the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart. That was just for the Levites, and the Levites set apart. That was for the sons of Aaron. So it's kind of a, a little summation there of all the things that were happening as far as their or, or, organization and being ordered and having supplies so that things could be taken care of. And that organization went all the way back to David, who divided the priests into 24 courses and set up the, the what the Levites were going to do and what the singers were going to do and all of that that was going to... All going to happen. So it was a, it was a historical thing. All right. <laughs> I got to figure out how I'm going to tell you the majority of the most important things here, which is in like four lines in my notes. Chapter thirteen. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and then it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter into the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah. Do you guys remember Tobiah? Tobiah was one of the, was one of the enemies in building the, the wall. He was related to Tobiah. Tobiah was an Ammonite. Now how did he get related to Tobiah? How did this priest get related to Tobiah? Hey, they intermarried, didn't they? prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by the commandant, or by the commandment, sorry, by the commandment to Levites, singers and gatekeepers and contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I was sent to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered this this evil that Elishab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house. And the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So what happens here? This, this priest, who's compromised his position by his intermarriage, brings in this enemy of God. This is one of the guys that opposed them building the wall. And he brings him in and he throws the things out of these chambers that are supposed to be used for storage. And he says, here's, you can have a nice apartment. And he gives him a place to live. And so it took... Uh, a couple of months to get from Jerusalem to where the king was. And it says the king of Babylon. It probably means that, um, that the king, Artaxerxes, was moving around his kingdom and he had moved from Susa to Babylon to rule from there for a while. It took a couple months to get there. We don't know how long Nehemiah was there. He, he just didn't show up. 
And if you remember, he left because the king gave him permission to leave. And when the king gave him that permission, he said, how long will you be gone? And Nehemiah had to set a time. So Nehemiah is reporting back to the king, and while he's gone, all of this has taken place. And when he returns, he finds out about it, and he gets, what? Angry. Let's talk more about that in a minute. Kicks him out. Verses 10. And I found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites, the singers who did the work, had each fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations, and all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil in the storehouses. And I appointed his treasures over the storehouses. He gives these people he's appointed there and their assistants. And it says in verse 14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe away, wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So the people quit bringing stuff in. The priests were not getting their portions. Where do you suppose those portions were going? I'm going to talk to you about corruption here in a second. And, and because of that, the people who were supposed to be serving there, they did what? They said, well, I've I got to go, go make a living, folks. So they went back to their places, to their fields, to their shops, whatever it was. And they went back to doing that. And because of that, it says the house of God was forsaken. Now, we already know that one of the evil uh, priests had cleared out the storerooms So he gives the priests their, provi- their provisions. Verse 15. In those days I saw Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day that they sold food. Uh, Tyrians, who were from Tyre, also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. How many follow this? All right. It's pretty simple. I don't have a lot to say about it. Um, they, but they profaned the Sabbath. Verse 19, As soon as it began to grow dark in the, in the gates, at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load may be brought into the Sabbath day. So when it says one of his servants, it means probably someone with a sword or a spear and the authority to tell people no. Okay. So it just wasn't some, you know, servant girl saying, no, no. So it was someone with authority there. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, (laughs) I will lay hands on you. Does anyone else have a different translation? I'm interested to see what translations you have out here. Anybody else have something different? What's your say? I will arrest you. All right. That's good. 
send his servants out there, arrest these miscreants. Anybody else? All right. (laughs) From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Smart. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in, in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. All right, now we're working up to this. Are you guys ready for the next part? It doesn't matter. I'm going to go do it anyway because that's what I'm supposed to do, whether you like it or not. All right. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them. <laughs> well, you're laughing. I haven't even said it yet. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, I quit reading there, but he goes on. He gives the example of Solomon and how that caused Solomon to fail. He says, you're causing us to fail by doing this. Hmm. Foreign wise. It goes actually down um, kind of through the end of the, the chapter. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elishab, the high priest was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. He was another one of the enemies. Therefore, I chased him from me. Does anybody else have a different translation? I made him flee away. I drove him away. (laughs) So... You get the idea is uh, I would, he didn't say something like, I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't be around here anymore. Um, Therefore I chased him away. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. All right, so let me talk to you about all these things. Firstly, all of these things that I just read were the very things in chapter 9 in chapter, excuse me, in chapter 10, that they made a covenant they would not do. They wouldn't intermarry. They were going to take care of the temple. They were going to bring in all the offerings. They were going to take care of the priests. They wouldn't buy or sell on the Sabbath. All of those things. They pledged all those things. And I kind of read them to you. And here, when Nehemiah leaves and he goes away, he comes back, he finds out that all of those things that they promised, they're no longer doing. Once again, folks, I want, to, I want to tell you something. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. They did not. To, to guard us and guide us, and we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit because that pressure to be like this corrupt, creeping world, it creeps in on us. And he leaves, and the thing is in one order. He comes back, you know, and it's in another order. It's like the guy who goes, you know, he works... Second shift, works third shift, he leaves his furniture in one place. He doesn't realize his wife has rearranged the furniture while he's gone. And he comes home in the dark and falls over the sofa. And uh, so he, he comes back and he finds out all this stuff is going to all of the same, all of the things they said we will not do. 
Let me share with you two quick things about this. Um, Nehemiah's response was forceful. Um, we need to think about this carefully, but one of the things that creeps is this whole me generation. Have you ever been chewed out at work? Don't you don't have to you don't have to say yes. <laughs> you ever been chewed out in school? Our response, if we're wrong, is to, is to say, you're right, I'm wrong, it won't happen again. The response of the world is to say, how dare you talk to me that way? I'm special in God's eyes. I really don't know how to say all this, I, um, I, and I don't know enough about it to say a whole lot about it, but I want to give you a warning. Because more and more the me generation is creeping into the church. I would like to think that in the Church of Jesus Christ there are men. Ladies, I'm not excluding you, but I want you, I'm just thinking about this, it goes along with my illustration, that there are men who if they get called before their commanding officer because they messed up, will stand at attention while their commanding officer chews them out. And when they're done, they will say, yes, sir, it'll never happen again, sir, and they'll salute, turn on their heels, and go out the door and make things right and will have the intestinal fortitude and the integrity when they get out there not to blame their boss for chewing them out for something they did wrong does any of this make any sense to anybody we've we've, over the past few years we've got ministers that have fallen prey to some degree or another to the me generation. And it's, it's very easy to do because ministers are supposed to be above reproach. Okay? Actually, <laughs> we're all supposed to be above reproach, but ministers are supposed to be above her. <laughs> Except in English. We'll let that slide. The only problem is I don't know anyone who knows what reproach is and what above reproach is. It's all nebulous. And I would, I would just warn you folks, just as these people were bombarded by a culture that did not reflect the character of God, we're surrounded by a culture that does not reflect the character of God. When the people whined and grumbled against God because they didn't have enough to drink, 
What did God do to them? He killed them. And then later, that story is repeated as an example of how you're not supposed to respond to God when you have difficulties. Nowadays, if you want to get something done, you just whine about it. And because everybody's afraid of offending somebody else, something will probably happen. In the old days, they just pull your hair out. And no, that's not what happened to me. <laughs> so, I, I, I know this is probably an incomplete thought. I, I'm not here to give you, and nor in, am I in most instances, in here to give you a list of absolutes. And there are some things, but a lot of these things we have to sort through and think through. And we have to think through this. And we have to pray through it carefully. Where is church discipline anymore? Can a church even, and we're going to talk about this in our adult Bible class in maybe six weeks. It's like two lessons away, but it'll probably take us six weeks to get there. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about where is church discipline anymore? If a, if a minister and the elders discipline somebody, and what do they do? They just get, for the most part, they get huffy and say, well, I don't have to come here, and they don't, and they go someplace else, and another church receives them. All right. Here's the second part. The creeping corruption from the world. Um, <clears throat> the tension of being in the world and not of it. And um, there are some ministers that, that are focused more on organizational realities than they are on the Lord. If I, let me give you an illustration. I want my doctor to have a place to work. Okay? Preferably not out on the street corner. You know, that'd be embarrassing. <laughs> All right. So I want my doctor to have a place to work. And but I also want him to be an expert in medicine. And if my doctor or my dentist or my auto mechanic or any one of those people that I depend on to have some expertise, if their constant focus is on their facility or their accounting software so that those fill their entire conversation rather than their, their specified skill, then there is a problem. Here's the problem. Most of the ministers I know are more eager to talk about their church, their church services, their church organization, how to grow their church, than they are the Lord. Here's the second part of the problem. Most Christians I know who go to church are more eager to talk about their church, their church services, their ministers, their programs, and how they're growing than they are to talk about the Lord. It's a creeping worldliness that sleep that, that uh, slips all into us. You know, do, does my doctor need a building? Yes. And there's going to be part of his time where he's going to have to devote to make sure that he's got a building and the bills are paid so that the building can be there and, and so on and so forth. And so there's staff that can tell me, usher me in and say, put on a mask, stupid, and bring me in, you know, and have me in there so I can do all that stuff. 
But if that's his entire, if that's if that's more than fifty percent of his focus, that's the beginning of a problem. And when it becomes eighty percent of his focus, it's way past being a terrible thing. You'd never know it. The preachers get the. I don't know what doctors talk about when they get together. I'm not a doctor. I assume there's probably some building stuff that goes in, or did you see the newest machine, or same way with mechanics, you see this, you get this new software, it could do this and do that for you, but that all ought to be connected to what their skill is. Did you read the latest journal where this set? Well, I know what preachers talk about when they get together. What did you do? Did you have a great thing for Easter? What great thing did you do for Easter? How's your building project going? Very few of them ever ask a stranger how their family is. Don't be like that. Or Nehemiah may come and pull out your hair. Sometimes we get enamored with personalities who appear to succeed and we get focused on the function of outsized organizations and all of that draws attention away from the Lord and it also draws attention away from the souls that we're supposed to be caring for creeping corruption and folks it'll creep into your lives too you have a house so you can live in you don't live so you can have a house The goal of your life is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. You have a car so you can get where you need to go. Mostly we get in our car and where do we go? We go to work. Okay? Alright? If, if you've got a job so you can have a nice car, you've got a problem. So the focus, it, it just creeps all the while. I, this is on the back of our business card. So if you go out there and grab one of the cards out there, it's got my name on the front of a business card. It says, nearly a century ago, a French sociologist wrote that every institution's first goal is to survive and grow, not to undertake the mission it has nominally staked out for itself. What's the mission of the church? To make disciples. But what, re- what is really the mission? To survive and grow. And that's not right. The corruption creeps and creeps and creeps. Now, what did Nehemiah build when he got to the city? A wall. Why? to keep things out that weren't supposed to be there. They put holes in the wall, they called gates, and we saw here, we just read this today, that when people were coming through the gates who shouldn't come, they locked the gates and they set a guard over them. Lock the gates, folks. Set a guard over it. Think about it. Pray about it. How is this stuff 
creeping in, taking over, and causing my thinking to go where it shouldn't go, causing my activity to go where it shouldn't go. Build the walls. Set the gates. Set the guard. So your heart and focus, your worship, as Jesus said, would be in spirit and in truth. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your, the faithfulness of your word. I also thank you that the time we live in is new to us, but it's not new to you. And that you know how to cause us to triumph and overcome. I pray for everyone who hears me personally here today and may hear this later that you will set those gates and walls around us. There may be some of us who, figuratively speaking, need to throw out those parts of our life that we have brought in from the world, those attitudes, those thoughts, those goals, those motivations, so that our heart can be singularly fixed on you and you alone. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.